Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian and Duyeb and I too am absolutely appalled, appalled I tell you, that someone stuck a banner up on a bridge near the Conservative Conference in Manchester that said hang the Tories. Awful. Yeah, I mean it really should have been on a billboard on a van driving around the area like Theresa May's racist go home campaign from a few years ago. I mean, I would also say they should have stuck it on the side of a bus, but that would mean it was something that I didn't believe in, even though I guess the government would have paid more attention to it if it had been, regardless. Yes, it's that time of the year again when everyone starts getting ready for Halloween early. Sorry, um, I mean, it's the annual Conservative Conference. Though, like some sort of Halloween celebration, it does appear that most Tories have arrived in Manchester, dressed up as a sort of grotesque version of the Labour Party, hoping that if they offer watered-down, ill-thought-through versions of the opposition's policies, it may make them popular again. Yeah, sure, because, I mean, low-alcohol beer's really cool, right? Right? They've proposed a freeze on tuition fees so that students can be lured by the possibility of staying as broke and as out of future prospects as they currently are. Nice one, guys. I mean, if you want to be down with the youth, why not just barge into one of their students' unions shouting, yeah, cool that your friend can breakdance, but did I tell you that actually I could do all of the hand jive? Then, on top of that, while sweating like he just opened the Ark of the Covenant, Sajid Javid said the words failure of housing several times, hoping that that should just be enough to sort it out. And then the Tories have even gone so far as to replicate their version of Labour Party infighting, only it's even worse as it often involves Boris Johnson, a.k.a. Penny Unwise the Clown. After Boris set out his four red lines for Brexit again in The Sun on Friday, a paper full of red lines despite the fact that no one should read any of them, several Conservative ministers have demanded that he resign, with Philip Hammond, a.k.a. Grand Toff Tarkin, saying Boris is definitely sackable. I do hope that's true as it's something that I've said for ages about Boris, although the problem will be carrying him to a bridge once he's in that sack. Prime Minister and only human to exhibit gecko-like skills for clinging on despite death, Theresa May, told the conference that Jeremy Corbyn has changed the political consensus, which is something that Labour leader and Jack White's current main source of income, Jeremy Corbyn, said himself at the Labour conference last week. Jezza said that Labour are now the mainstream, which I really hope doesn't mean he'll do his next speech in autotune and has it featured on Now That's What I Call Politics 76. 
What it does mean, though, is that the Conservatives are having to pander to Labour's left-wing policies. Yeah, he's kind of like a weird reverse version of 2015. I fully expect May to pose with a giant headstone soon, with promises of rail renationalisation carved onto it, though to be fair, it's more likely just to have her tenure as Prime Minister instead. Last week, she told press that her party didn't do as well at the snap election as predicted because they weren't ready. Yes, not ready for an election, she called. Though, to be fair, that does fit in with the past year of her leadership. Triggering Article 50 without a plan, universal credit rolling out without being finished. It's a damn shame that she won't just take the same attitude with resigning. It was Theresa May's birthday on Sunday and Andrew Marr gave her severe birthday bumps with an interview on his BBC One show that felt a lot more like the Voigt-Kampf test from Blade Runner, which predictably May didn't pass. May was underconfident and unsure throughout, answering questions as to whether she'd quit if she couldn't get a deal with the EU, with her vague response being, I'm looking to get a deal, proving immediately that no answer is better than a crap one. Ma described the Conservative cabinet right now as a nest of singing birds with an enormous cuckoo and a collection of vultures. Yes, I'm fairly sure all the canaries died in July last year. Other Conservative conference lowlights include disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox promising to sign 40 trade deals the second after Brexit passes, which at that speed I'm certain means he's not reading any of the small print. Also, there is little to make things less worthwhile than Fox stamping his disgraced name all over them. He's kind of like a reverse George Foreman. Meanwhile, during his speech to the conference, Philip Hammond said the Conservatives must defeat Labour dinosaurs and their back-to-the-future socialist fantasy. Firstly, I'd really like to see that film. Secondly, many have always referred to the Conservatives as dinosaurs, so what does that comment now make them if Labour are now the dinosaurs? Some sort of single-celled spineless organisms? Well, I guess that does pretty much describe Liam Fox quite accurately. Oh, and Environment Secretary and what happens when Grubbs only half-hatch, Michael Gove, started his speech by saying that him being on the stage this year was proof that the government are committed to recycling. Hardy-har, Govey, but the problem with that is you really should have been thrown out as waste ages ago. Michael Gove has promised that Brexit means the UK will be able to export more pig's ears to China. Uh, an odd claim, which I guess means that maybe he'll get sent to China? But anyway, if he means it as absolute truth, then who on earth will be left to listen to anything Michael says? Meanwhile, the Labour conference ended last week with Jeremy Corbyn making a speech that, like Lord of the Rings, had lots of good bits in it and was about helping the plight of the little people, but at 75 minutes was far, far too long, with many critics saying it was largely fantasy. Appearing confident and assured in stark contrast to May, Corbyn pledged rent controls, more workplace democracy and that under Labour, people win together, which I'm worried will just make the lottery shit. There was a promise to change organ donation laws, which might concern all of those in the heart of the country, and Jezza announced that our values are not to be served by building walls or pandering to racism, so that one sentence will probably upset white van men everywhere. But it does appear that Labour are now definitely a government in waiting, though who knows how long for, with a hold over the middle ground that's now definitely shifted leftwards. Though, considering how right it's been since 1979, that's not unlike saying your shelf is balanced while the spirit level slides off to the right and smashes on the floor. While the conference was deemed mostly a success, there was another accusation of anti-Semitism from a guest speaker, and there was a story in The Sun about BBC reporter Laura Kunzberg having to hire a bodyguard for protection due to violent threats from Labour supporters, which is very depressing to hear. Though, in the interests of non-partisanship, Laura Kunzberg has also taken the same bodyguard to the Conservative conference, where he'll probably be praying shit goes down and that he has to take a bullet just so he doesn't have to sit through May's closing speech. I know I would. Oh, and the UKIP conference took place last week as well, where new leader Henry Bolton was hatched, or summoned. I'm not really sure what they do now. 
From first appearances, the Henry Bolton gives you no connections to Europe, limited data, especially when fact-checking, and adds special blinkers to your camera. UKIP voted to change their logo to one with a lion on it, which I will now use to refer to all their meetings as pride gatherings, hopefully prompting them to never meet as they'll be terrified that gathering together will cause floods. In Europe, Catalonians have overwhelmingly voted for independence in a referendum that saw over 800 people injured by Spanish riot police who tried to prevent it from going ahead. Because nothing says, hey, let's stay together as a union, like horrific, unnecessary state-initiated violence and rubber bullets. The Spanish Deputy Prime Minister said that the government have responded with firmness and proportionality, though she didn't say proportionality to what, because it seems less like an appropriate response to people queuing up civilly to exercise their democratic right, and more like the first line of attack against an impending zombie horde. The European Commission has backed the government and said the vote was not legal, so it's an internal issue for Spain. Yeah, like hemorrhaging or a ruptured spleen, which if not handled with urgency and care, might become fatal. Oi, oi, partly listeners. The show has made it to episode 75, and so, as it's the Audio Diamond anniversary, I will make this show suitably hard to listen to. I mean, don't I always? Um, I actually, I have a head cold this week, so it's actually quite hard to record. Um, it's not even a proper head cold. It's just a sort of half-assed one that's using minimal effort to make me have minimal effort with everything. Blah. I mean, on the plus side, I can blame any awful jokes in this week's show on all the snot that has just invaded and surrounded my head. You see, I can't even write a good joke about that. I mean, having a snotty head is like, um... Uh, damn you, snotty head. Anyway, I hope you don't have snotty heads and that all is hunky-dory with you. And thank you, as per every goddamn show, for listening to this. Um, thank you also for the nice comments on the bonus episode last week from the Labour Conference. I am aware that that meant you had over two hours of listening in your week uh, of my voice, which is an awful lot to ask of anyone. I mean, pity my wife. Um, but that is why it was a bonus episode and it was there for those of you that fancied it, which it turned out was a lot of you. Um, and if you do like those sorts of things please do let me know as i will try and get to more political events and record more people at them as kind of bonus content if i can um i did have a lot of fun at the labor conference and a big shout out to lola and the women in the exhibition hall whose name i can't remember sorry 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 who both said that they listened to his podcast which was brilliant um and if you are the latter please drop me an email and say hey as i now feel really really terrible that i can't remember what your name was what was it no idea um but i was super chuffed to meet some listeners that is very very nice indeed um and also thank you to whoever reviewed this show on iTunes this week. Uh, It's currently on 69 reviews, so come on, please, please give me at least one more, otherwise I will make terrible jokes about 69 reviews, which I am trying really hard not to do right now. Um, Jason Reed, who's previous podcast and host of the Brilliant Stop and Search podcast, told me that he didn't know how to review podcasts on iTunes, and if you are the same, like Jason, nothing to be ashamed of. It is easier to do it on a laptop, firstly. Um, You just have to search for the podcast in the iTunes store, and then click on it and then under the podcast name heading is a tab that says ratings and reviews which if you click on it then has a tab in it saying write a review or you can just click on the stars et voila yes it is more steps than is necessary um as i say about all steps as someone who hates steps but there you go um it really does help uh, to get more listeners on board so if you don't mind doing that uh, please 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 do help uh, because as i heard at the labor 
conference 7,000 times last week. Uh, help this go out to the many, not just the few. I've totally stolen that and I've used it for bad. Anyway, um, if also, if you can afford to donate to this show, it would be really much appreciated so I can do more things like go to uh, other conferences and stuff. Um, and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or a one-off at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. And I promise I do use all donations towards making this show better, whether it's just buying better recording stuff, uh, tickets to political events, or just being able to turn down weird gigs in Rutland so I can spend more time researching this thing, which I didn't do last week and instead did the gig. And wow, it was weird. A um, couple of other admin things for this week. Uh, firstly, Cat Day, who regularly brilliantly types up the linear notes for this show, which I post on the Facebook page. Um, she has written a story for the 24 Stories Anthology, which is being put together to aid the PTSD needs of the survivors of the Grenfell Tower Fire and Trauma Response Network, and it's being edited by the amazing Kathy Burke. Um, and that's all been fully funded on Unbound.com, but any further donations go towards the Trauma Response Network, who provide early response to events of mass trauma in the UK, so very important. And if you donate, you get a copy of the book as well. So do that. Head to Unbound.com forward slash books forward slash Grenfell and do give them a hand. Secondly, uh, I had a previous podcast guest contact me about the interview that I did with Matt Turner in last week's show, so which I thought I would quickly read to you. Um, the previous podcast is Michael Marshall, uh, the sceptic and excellent spotter of fake news, amongst many other talents. Uh, you might remember him from episode 44 from the beginning of this year, which is worth going back and listening to because it's still very relevant if you haven't before. Um, and Michael said that he thought the interview with Matt Evolved Politics was interesting, but that many of the things he said were worrying, particularly that writers get more money depending on how many clicks their articles get. He said that while you can have all the problems with the mainstream media that you like, decoupling popularity from payment allows for nuance and balance, whereas paying based on clicks takes the worst aspect of a tabloid, based sensationalism, and magnifies it. Which, um, to be fair to Michael, I don't disagree with at all. And firstly, I should point out that Matt Turner said that they pay a flat fee followed by extra for clicks. But then I didn't question Matt how much the base fee was due to me being about to get kicked out of a hotel room in Cork while I Skype interviewed him. And that kind of messed up my questioning strategies. Anyway, um, I would also say, especially after the past week of some quite dubious stories popping up in the Canary and Evolve about BBC reporter Laura Kunzberg supposedly being invited to speak at the Scory conference, which was then denied by the BBC. Anyway, I still think it's most important to just read a cross-section of news and double-check and fact-check things as much as you can from all publications. Um, I interviewed Matt last week because I think the rise of news sites like his is very interesting and I do find Evolve is not quite as over-the-top as other independent sites, but I do also, while I read Evolve occasionally, I do still make sure I read all the stories on several other sites as well, and, and I just think that is what you need to do in today's day and age. Um, I'm also aware that I don't always question guests on here as much as I should, but I quite like letting them talk because that's what you don't get on a lot of TV and radio shows. But I am, as always, interested in your thoughts and sometimes your feelings and occasionally your behaviours. So let me know how you think about all of that. Um, you can get in contact whenever you like via partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com, uh, at Parpolbro on Twitter or the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, which is gaining members. And I would really like it if all of you started posting articles, gags or whatever political thing you like on there as well. And I've added three questions that you have to answer in order to join the group. And I am enjoying all of your answers. So well done, everyone.
Um, oh, uh, and my brother, The Last Skeptic, uh, who does all the music for this show, he has a new album out that I have plugged on the podcast before. Um, it's called This Is Where It Gets Good. And despite him being my younger brother and therefore I should hate everything he does, it is actually really, really damn good. I've listened to it loads. Um, and it features some excellent guests, including the amazing Koji Radical, who I think is brilliant, uh, among others. Um, it's available on all music-type places, so please do download and go and have a listen. Uh, this Is Where It Gets Good. That's what it's called by The Last skeptic um right on this week's show i have a chat with political commentator nina schnick all about the german elections last week uh, i'm going to be looking at independence referendums in catalonia and iraqi kurdistan and there are more conference updates as well Oh, and I'm not going to talk about the upsetting shooting in Las Vegas because at the time of recording this, there is still not enough information, despite ISIS already claiming it uh, and the FBI already saying it's nothing to do with ISIS. I swear ISIS claims so many things that scam call centres should just call them up about car accidents they haven't had. Anyway, we know it was an incident of domestic terrorism because Trump hasn't been tweeting about it all day. But if needs be, I will look at it next week. Instead, for this week, have some of this. You've heard of Boeing, right? Uh, The aircraft-making company that also sounds like a really posh spring going off. Boeing? Just me? Okay. Uh, Well, the American company has filed a complaint against rival Canadian company Bombardier, which also makes aircraft and sounds like uh, a deer falling down some stairs. Bombardier. Uh, No? Okay. Anyway, uh, Boeing have complained that Bombardier are engaging in anti-competitive practices by selling their C-Series planes at below cost in the US. Why should you give a shit, you ask? Well, here's the thing, right? Bombardier employ a ton of people in Northern Ireland, and Washington have so far sided with Boeing, meaning that Bombardier are going to have a ton of tariffs placed on them, which could result in job losses not only in Canada, but also the UK. Which is bad news for the company, as they've already said they'll be cutting 1,000 jobs from their Northern Ireland department, with 95 already gone. And you might still wonder why you should give a shit because you're a cold-hearted hater who don't care about job losses because, hey, who hasn't lost a job in the past few years, am I right? But if that is the case, then firstly, wow, you're not a nice person. Why do you listen to this? And secondly, Theresa May has ordered UK ministers and Britain's ambassador to the US to start a five-month campaign for Boeing to drop its complaint, with Defence Secretary Michael Fallon warning them that it could lose some defence contracts in the future. And that means that the UK is now indirectly in conflict with the US Commerce Department, and that could mean that there'll be issues post-Brexit with the UK-US trade deal, which could mean that you won't be getting your chlorinated chicken, so no KFC smells like a swimming pool buckets for you. Though, while it could mean all of these sort of things, oddly for him, Trump is not flaring up about it, probably because he's too busy telling American football players to stand up instead of kneel down, which is a horrific thing, though at the same time, maybe he's just worried if they kneel down, they'll die from the floods that he's not helping with. Anyway, uh, all of this is going as all these sort of conflicts usually go, and apparently they happen a lot more often than you think, and all in all, it could take years. So you might have been right not to care in the first place. Or are you? No one knows. There's every chance this will be sky high on the post-Brexit problems list, or just as likely that, like Boeing's wishes for Bombardier's planes, it'll never take off. Ha! How's that for airplane puns? I've got more. That was only the pilot. Ha! What do you mean I'm a total cockpit? Alright, that is... I mean, that's really enough, isn't it? It was probably too much. Too much. Bank of England governor and boring character in an Aaron Sorkin series, Mark Carney, has said that he expects interest rates to rise in November. This would be good for savings, but bad for borrowings. And Carney has warned against reckless household borrowing, saying that there is a danger for rapid, frothy growth in that area, which is usually something you can deal with using anointment from your GP. 
A rise in interest rates could also mean a fall in housing prices, which is good, as then people like me can still not afford to buy a home, but only still not afford to buy a home ever so slightly less. But if you do have a mortgage, then a rise in interest rates could mean that that goes up, and so could all your household bills. So all in all, not that fun, but the Bank of England chief economist insists that the first rise in interest rates in a decade would be a good news story because it would be a sign of the economy healing, proving that A, he has enough savings in his account that it means it will be a good news story for him, and B, that he's never actually watched the news to the end or he'd see all those occasional good news stories about baby animals at the zoo, which is actually good news, as opposed to, well, hey, Rich Peoples is doing okay again, which really isn't good news. Consider my personal interest constantly low as always. Germany. If Italy is the boot of Europe, Germany is sort of its lower back, which I guess would make Poland its butt, with Greece its sort of other weird leg, and then Spain its head, which is kind of shouting at Algeria. Yeah, I'm not really sure how any of that correlates with the politics of those places either, but that's what it looks like if you look at it on a map. Go and have a look. Go and have a look. Yeah, there you go. Oh, wait, hang on. If Germany is the lower back, then that means it's necessary for support. But as soon as it goes wrong, everything falls over and can't move. Yeah? Yeah, sort of correlate. No, you shut up. Deutschland had its main Bundestag or German parliament elections last week. And while political Bob pioneer Angela Merkel remained chancellor, there were a few far-right shaped shake-ups of the kind we've seen too many of in the Western world in recent years. Though, from my point of view, even one uprising of the far right is too many, so this now feels like a veritable swarm. I'm not sure what the correct collective term for a group of fascists is. Is it a swarm? A tyranny? A twat? Do let me know at all the usual addresses. The populist AFD, or Alternative for Deutschland, got 12.6% of the vote, which means they'll have seats in the Bundestag for the first time. But with one of their leaders already resigning to form her own more moderate party, should Germans be worried about this, or are they far too wary of such things happening again, and do they already have David Hasselhoff on speed dial just in case? Well... As you probably noticed, I'm not good on my knowledge of German politics, and in fact my limited visits to Germany mainly involve a trip when I was 13 to Rudersheim, where my friend Nick swore at people in English because he thought they didn't understand, but hey, they all did and they were all very angry, and another trip in my 20s to Munich where I drank beer in the cinema and therefore decided it was the very best of places. So... What that means is I'm no sort of authority to comment on what last week's elections really mean. But someone who is, is political commentator and expert in EU policy, Nina Schick. Nina has worked on various political campaigns, including Macron's French presidential campaign, and has worked with EU policy think tank Open Europe, as well as German news outlet Spiegel Online. Oh, and she's half German too. So you might say she does indeed know what she's talking about when it comes to this subject. Nina very kindly explained exactly what it all means, and I have to say, for the first time ever on this podcast, I think this interview actually made me feel slightly better about things after we did it. Well, until halfway through and we start discussing Brexit and everything seems really shit again, but hey, you can always stop listening before that bit. Nina works in an open plan office, so every now and then someone in the background seems to just hit wooden planks, or at least that's what it sounded like. I've no idea what they do in her office, but um, I've edited as much of it out as possible, but every now and then you might just get a little snippet of sort of DIY karate kid in the background. Sorry about that. But anyway, hope you enjoy the rest of it. Here is Nina. Hi, Nina. Thank you very much for speaking to me today uh, for the podcast. Um, first up, uh, as a Brit, I know very little about German politics, which will be of no surprise to you whatsoever. Um, what does the election outcome that we've just seen in Germany mean for the country? Um, how much of an impact 
do the AFDs gain of 90 or so seats? Uh, how, mu- how much impact is that going to make on the country? Okay, so the first thing to say about the result of the German election is that everybody needs to calm down and take a deep breath. I knew that the story, uh, the big story of the election was going to be that the AFD won seats in the Bundestag. And yes, it is a huge deal for Germany because there's this far-right anti-immigrant population uh, party. But if you look at what's happened in Germany in the past two years, let's not forget that in 2015, you had over a million refugees come to the country. And all the other political parties, every single one of them, aside from the AFD, um, supported Angela Merkel on this. And in fact, some parties were calling for her to go even further. So the fact that there's been a backlash, the fact that the AFD has grown because of the migration crisis is to be expected. So that's the first point to make. The second point is that even though they have seats in the Bundestag, um, all the other parties are not going to work with them. So it'll be really interesting. They are going to get some benefits by being in the Bundestag. They get state broadcasting time. They get state money to see if they have uh, staying power and sticking power. Um, I would imagine that uh, a lot of the public uh, are going to be really horrified by this and they're going to protest, you know, almost every kind of AFD speech or rally. Um, and I would imagine the other parties would make it very difficult for AFD as well. The third point to make is that a lot of the AFD voters are voting for AFD as a protest vote. So only 33% of AFD voters say they actually voted for the AFD because of conviction. 70% of them that voted for AFD uh, think the party's too far right. <laughs> um, and so it can, <laughs> right? It <makes> wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, the logic is, uh, is a currency that doesn't seem to be uh, used too much these days. Anyway, um, and it, it can be seen as a vote against the refugee policies of Angela Merkel, also a personal vote against Merkel herself. I mean, this is her fourth term. She's been in office for 12 years. People, Some people are getting fatigued of uh, Muti. Um, and the final point I would make is that 87% of the public voted for parties that stand on platforms that are extremely, well, the exact opposite from the AFD when it comes to immigration. So the overall thing I would say about it is, yes, it's shocking for Germany. The country... Uh, is going to be shocked by the result. It's something to do deeply with identity politics. But this rhetoric that somehow, you know, the far right have taken over the Bundestag and we're seeing a return to neo-Nazism in Germany, that's far-fetched. Sure. I mean, is it also... Because I, I found it quite... Um good to hear that they're already sort of falling apart with, and I forgive my pronunciation, is it Frau Capetri? Was she, is that, I don't know if I've said that right. Um, she was the, the one of the, the co-leaders that split and has formed this new party already. And, and I wondered if this is kind of an instance of, um, as we sort of saw in the Netherlands uh, previously, when a populist party does actually gain seats that they might not, they might not be able to do anything with it because it goes against <laughs> the idea of being a populist party. Yeah, I mean, they definitely uh, have a very colourful uh, bunch of um, uh, leaders. And I'm sure that you've already seen it. You said it right. Frau Petri left. She's starting her own party. You've already seen this in 2016 last year. There was lots of in, infighting in the party. And 
Uh, that's because they unite this very kind of odd coalition. Some AFD leaders uh, joined the AFD because they didn't want, they didn't support Germany's Eurozone bailout policy. So, you know, more money to Greece, etc. They were against that. That's actually why the party was initially founded. And then when the migration crisis happened, uh, they were hijacked by the far right of the party. So the fact that, you know, this is kind of the party that's in opposition to what most of the other mainstream parties are saying, both on Eurozone policy and on the refugee crisis, means that they've united a broad church, and I would imagine they're going to start to disintegrate pretty quickly. Wow. Okay. So, and 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 I noticed as well there was um, uh, not quite as big a rise, but the Greens made gains, the Free Democratic Party made gains, the Left Party made gains, and as you said, people that voted for the AfD did it as a, a protest vote. So, even though uh, Merkel. Uh, is now still Chancellor and the CDU did well. Are we seeing, um, as you mentioned, some people just kind of getting fed up with the same leader? Um, do, is this is this going to be, you know, the beginnings of a change anyway? Some sort of change? <laughs> well, I think everything needs to be put into perspective. So if you look at German politics after the war, there's always been a ruling coalition. So the first thing to point out is, yes, you know, uh, the last Bundestag had four parties. Now we have six. So the, the center has become somewhat more splintered. But the Greens, Die Linke and the liberal FDP, they've been around for decades. So the only kind of newcomer to the scene in the Bundestag is the AFD. And again, as to Will there be huge change? I would argue on the international stage, no. Germany's commitment to the EU remains unwavering, so their policy on that is not going to change. I can tell you, I can guarantee you that their policy on Brexit is not going to change, which, of course, is something that I've heard a lot of Brexiteers arguing here in the UK. <laughs> um, but the big issue where there will have to be conversation, because something happened so quickly and at such a scale is one about identity, uh, integration of refugees and what this means for the country going forward. Because if a country, I can't imagine any other leader or any other European leader or maybe even any other leader in the world allowing one million refugees to come into the country and then still surviving and winning a fourth term. I mean, if you look at it from that angle, um, it's quite exceptional. So, sure. yes, there will be a, a, a a necessary debate about integration policy, about refugees, but on the big questions as to Germany's position on the EU, uh, on defence, foreign policy, you know, I would imagine that's going to continue along the way that it has been going. I was just going to say that you're saying that, you know, it is remarkable that uh, Germany's taken in one million refugees and people are still supportive of that policy. And I find that very heartwarming to know that personally. Um, but is the... Uh, any of the concern about refugees, is that a, a wider concern about jobs and the economy in Germany overall? Is that something people are worried about? What are, what are the main issues for German people right now? OK, so if you look at traditionally the issues that have moved voters in German elections, unemployment is one of them, it has always kind of been like a, a top issue. But if you look at this election, it's dropped down the list and immigration has become the top issue. Again, this is directly correlated to the events of 2015 when a million refugees came in. And if you actually look at Germany's economy, it's doing really well. Mm. Unemployment is very low. Having said that, there are, of course, issues if you go into like more granular detail. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, workers in the eastern half of Germany, they survive on these so-called mini jobs. So they have, you know, a couple, 
a couple of jobs rather than one really well-paying job. But the general picture that the economy is doing well um, is is definitely one that is that is felt by German voters. So this this vote or this concern about immigration is not to do with the they're coming to take our jobs argument. In fact, because Germany is a country that's facing demographic decline, when the refugee crisis was happening, um, all the economists and politicians were saying, you know, this is a good thing because we need young people to come to our country to work here. So the whole argument is very different in Germany than it is in the UK. So this is primarily an issue about identity, uh, religion, uh, because obviously uh, the uh, fact Islam as a religion is growing in Germany when you look at the demographics, um, but it's not one that's related directly to economics. Right. Okay. So it comes from a, a very different, uh, a very different perspective from one that we might recognise in the UK. Absolutely, it's completely different. And uh, obviously, I was analysing the results of the German election with some uh, very vocal Brexiteer commentary commentators, and they do what I, I love to call Brexit splaining, which is <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, sounds awful uh, already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is basically applying the logic of Brexit to a German political context. So you can make some very facile comparisons to the rise of the far right, i.e. AFD in Germany, to the rise of UKIP, and say this is all to do with the tyranny of the EU. And yet, you know, UKIP also was uh, uh, their primary point was one on immigration, but it's completely different because UKIP's contention was to do with free movement of people. That is uh, migration within the EU. That is not the case in Germany. Um, even the AFD is not against free movement of people. They are specifically to do with the refugee crisis, which is the millions of people that came to Germany from outside the EU. So it's intellectually dishonest to draw too many parallels between the two countries. Sure. I mean, I, I did notice in the, in the, I think in the AFD's kind of uh, manifesto list that they were talking about closing the borders of the Schengen area, not just of Germany. So it was, it's still an EU, a, a very pro-EU idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I, find exactly. it, I, I mean, I still find it fascinating that Nigel Farage wants to talk to AFD when he's against European unions. But there you go. Uh, very bizarre. So um <laughs> I, what I did want to ask about um, Merkel, just to be mentioned earlier, I, and I, as you said, there isn't due to be any sort of uh, major change in terms of politics. But if this is her last term as chancellor, is that mm -hmm. going to leave some sort of power vacuum? Because she's now been chancellor for four consecutive terms, isn't it? And um, that's going to be quite a change when she steps down. I mean, who, who is there anyone that's being built up to be a potential replacement? Is there anyone that the, the German public are keen on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, Angela Merkel famously comes from the Helmut Kohl school of politics, and she's been very successful in bopping any potential successors on the head. Now, <laughs> German politics is maybe a little bit more boring than UK politics, because when politicians go down in Germany, it's usually to do with some scandal in which they find out a few sentences in their PhD thesis was plagiarized. And, you know. <laughs> oh, that sounds refreshing. I wish it was like that. <laughs> that's, that's enough to end a political career. Wow. Uh, you know, so it certainly isn't telling, uh, you don't even, as AFD aside, but, you know, in the mainstream, you certainly don't have politicians uh, telling barefaced lies and getting away with it, because I think um, the public would be very outraged at that. Um, so, 
yeah, there have been no really successes for Merkel, which is one of the reasons why she's been so successful. But I think if this is her last term, then she will be aware that she needs to kind of groom her successor. So I think we still have four years. Um, there will be some names coming forward. Um, you know, as the era of Merkel ends, there are kind of hot new names that are being touted, but no one yet is the apparent successor to Merkel. But hey, she's just won her first term. We still have some time before we get there. Sure, it's going to be at least is it four years will be the next election. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so there's we, we've got a little little bit of time, I guess. We do. Um, <laughs> Independence is a very sought-after thing. Throughout history, people have fought for it, argued for it, voted for it, and in Destiny's Child's case, even sung about it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Though, if they were really independent, why were they so desperate for everyone to throw their hands up at them? Hmm, smells of hand-throwing dependency to me. In the past week, there have been two major independence referendums around the world that could have quite significant consequences for the areas and states that they're in. What? Referendums about self-governance having significant and long-lasting political effects? I bet you can't imagine such a thing here in the UK. It's basically unheard of in this part of the world, so I guess you'll just have to use your imagination to try and grasp what such a thing like that is. <laughs> Sarcasms. The first of these referendums is the Catalonian referendum, which took place on Sunday, despite the shocking attempts of the Spanish government to stop it from happening, sending in riot police to attack people waiting to vote, because nothing says you don't need independence like authoritarian government control. 90% of Catalonians voted for independence, which is the sort of figure you can't argue with, unless of course you know it's a vote where only two people are eligible to take part, in which case somebody is really underconfident in that partnership. But with Spain gaslighting the whole thing and saying that the vote didn't happen, and the European Commission saying it wasn't a legal vote either, what does all of this mean? Well, sounding like a mythical land for felines, Catalonia is actually the richest region in Spain, with its own language, Catalonian, its own flag that looks a lot like a superhero motif, and a mired history of being taken over by Spain, France, and then Spain again, with their state of autonomy being granted, removed, granted, and then removed again. 
While it was only over 15 to 20% of Catalonians that wanted independence, Spain hit a financial crisis in 2010 and as a result of blame being pointed at Madrid, calls for Catalonia to manage their own shit grew largely. And so, to cut a very, very, very long story very, very short, after a long build-up, increased demand for independence, a vote for independence in 2014 that was ignored by the Spanish government, Carlos Puigdemont, the president of Generalitat Catalonia, announced in June that there would be another independence referendum on October the 1st of this year. However, Spanish Premier Mariano Rajoy, who's currently less popular with the Spanish people than vegetarians are, said that this vote was illegal and warned the state might use any political and judicial mechanism contained in the Constitution and in the laws to defend the sovereignty of the Spanish people and the general interest of Spain. What he didn't say, though, is that they would also be using riot police to seize votes and violently attack and fire rubber bullets at voters, with over 800 civilians, including elderly and children, injured as well as 11 police. Riot police, in this instance, being so-called because they cause not prevent them. The footage of it is actually really hugely upsetting, and there has been global condemnation for the violence that took place from everyone except, well, the EU Commission, who said it was an internal issue for Spain, although the EU Parliament are discussing it this week. There's been quite a lot of noise on social media about EU Article 7 uh, that is to be used against member countries that have committed human rights violations, which the Spanish state using police to attack civilians could easily be classed as. But Article 7 is split into two parts, with 7.1 being a formal warning from the Council, then 7. to be implemented if 7.1 has no effect, uh, to then impose sanctions and suspend EU voting rights. Article 7 has never been used though and 7.1 is likely to happen way before 7.2 does because nothing makes a country sort its human rights situation out like a really good telling off. The other group who haven't condemned Spain is, of course, surprise, surprise, the UK government, where Foreign Secretary Boris, this is what happens when a blancmange is inseminated by a beanbag, Johnson, who also said it's a matter for Spain, probably because if things really escalate, he'll see it as an opportunity to sell them weapons. Despite this, 2.26 million people managed to vote, which is 42% of the population, and so still a better turnout than most votes in the UK. But these results will not be recognised by Madrid or the Spanish government. I mean, how can they not recognise results? Have they not seen results before? It's not like they're in disguise or have changed their hair, is it? So this will likely mean that Catalan will declare unilateral independence, which could mean Spain tried to seize control over the area using Article 155, which would then give them direct rule. But then that could have implications for Rajoy, who has only rule over a minority government that needs the backing of Basque nationalists, who are people who love lingerie, I think, and they're not happy with Rajoy's methods so far. Spain's opposition, the Socialist Party, were also in broad agreement with Rajoy about the Catalan independence, but that they might not be so much now that he's been a total gilapolas about it all. And Article 155 has never been used before either, and if used, shit is going to go down. But at the same time, negotiations are unlikely to happen otherwise between Rajoy and Puigdemont either, as the Spanish government has flatly refused doing so. So, who knows what's going to happen? Could it be the first use of Article 155, followed by the EU's first use of Article 7? Could there be another Spanish civil war? And can pro-Brexit people stay happy in their heads that they've complained about the EU being too involved in the UK, but are now somehow angry that they aren't more involved in Spain? Who knows, but it's not going to be sorted anytime soon. Personally, I've heard from a man I was speaking to the other day that it's best if Spain separate for big orders, but then share lots and lots of smaller things together. <laughs> the other independence referendum last week was for Iraqi Kurdistan, the region to the north of Iraq, which had a 93% result in favour of it becoming its own nation. 
Kurds are, as well as one of Miss Muffet's faves, the indigenous people of Mesopotamia. And while they don't have their own country, they live in a block across Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Iran and Armenia, which, if you're going to choose any area to spread out in, feels like a really bad call. While the Kurdish vote was non-binding, the Kurdistan regional government, who are also semi-autonomous, said that it was binding. It's a bit like cheap superglue, isn't it? You know, it's binding if you use it on certain things. And some people just have a knack. So, in similar fashion to Spain, the Iraq government have said that it wasn't a legal vote and they have rejected it. And despite working with the Kurdish people to retake Mosul only recently and the KRG saying that they would happily negotiate with the Iraqi government, instead Iraq's Prime Minister has decided actually it is just best to threaten them with taking away their semi-autonomy. Seriously everyone, if someone wants to go their own way, you're not going to win them back by saying that they'll get nothing if they do. Have none of these people got teenage children? Really? So now Iraq has joined with Iran and Turkey to block flights to Iraqi Kurdistan territory and they also haven't ruled out sending military to take control of their cities. It also doesn't help that Turkish President Erdogan is involved in this either because he's A, a lunatic and B, has a personal hatred against the Kurdish people after nearly losing power to a Kurdish party in 2015. Erdogan also met with Putin, who, having oil investments in that area, agreed in the most terrifyingly film-villain way that the Kurds must be discouraged from making any more mistakes. I mean, how much more villain can you get? I hope he didn't have a white cat in his arms while he said it, or things are going to get real bad. So, what next for these guys? Well, the Iraqi Kurds have been allies with the West since the fall of Saddam Hussein back in 2003, so if needs be, they could call them for backup. And what harm has ever happened from the West intervening in the Middle East, right? I mean, especially when Russia are involved as well. (laughs) I'm sure it's all going to work out just fine, guys. Guys? And now, back to Nina. So um, uh, thank you. That's that's genuinely helpful uh, in understanding the the German election. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I apologise for bringing this up because personally I'm sick of talking about Brexit. Um, but you are an EU citizen in the UK, um, and I've I've read a lot of your stuff on Brexit, which I think is great. But um, how are you feeling post May's speech? Um, has it given you? Has it has it done anything to allay any of your concerns, or um, nothing? Has it done nothing for you at all? Well. I think the the thing about Theresa May's speech is that I think the British government is in the process of being mugged by reality rather quickly. So if you look at her first Brexit speech, the Lancaster House speech, which was earlier in the year, uh, Theresa May was saying, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. We're ready to walk away. She was threatening to suspend defense, uh, security and defence cooperation with the EU if the UK did not get the deal that it wanted. And I think after the general, the disastrous general election and the work that Number 10 has been doing and realising, you know, what actually a no-deal scenario would mean, means that the Prime Minister has made, in her Florence speech, a step towards getting serious about the negotiations. So what did she do? She said there would be action on EU citizens' rights. She made a promise on the financial liabilities and, of course, they talked about the Northern Ireland border issue, which, by the way, there's still no solution to this. But anyway, mm. the sides are fine. The, from the EU's perspective, Theresa May's Florence speech is um, a step in the right direction in the sense that they can now actually start engaging uh, on the, on the ish, items in the divorce. They were unable to do that before then. Remember, we're six months in to the Article 15 negotiations, because the everything that the UK was putting forward was just not realistic. 
So it's a step in the right direction. It's enough for the talks to um, continue because, of course, there's another round of talks going on this week. And had Theresa May not made that speech, then there would have really been nothing much to talk about. But there will still be big items coming up in the future that the UK is going to have to well, talk to the public honestly about. So the way that I see it, the biggest risk is that the more you say, you know, we don't have to pay anything, we shouldn't pay a penny, we can have access to the market even if we're outside, we have like this great free liberal trading future with the rest of the countries in the world. Um, the more you up the ante with these this kind of rhetoric, the higher the risk is that there's a, a no-deal scenario. But I think Theresa May's speech... Uh, well, it's a step in the right direction. There'll have to be more, though. Yeah, I mean, it's because I sort of felt like I know she did mention those key areas, but she didn't. She was very vague on them. You know, she sort of mentioned them and then didn't really say what she'd be doing with <laughs> the Northern Irish border or EU citizen. Just kind of, uh, uh, which, yes. uh, which was what, what concerned me um, even more. I mean, what are your and it's a, a tricky question because this could change probably while we're recording this uh, due to someone's comment, likely. But um, what are your predictions for what's going to happen next? Because it does now feel like we're definitely going to have a Brexit. Um, it doesn't. I think the, the possibilities of a second referendum becoming smaller and smaller. Um, do you see a, a potential good outcome of this? Um, OK, so there's definitely Brexit, I think, is definitely going to happen. I don't think it's going to be overturned. I mean, in the last general election, you had 80 percent of the people, uh, the population in the UK vote for two parties that um, don't contest Brexit. Right. Both Labour and the Tories. Um, the at this point, it's simply a damage control exercise, in my view. So that is the exactly what the government is trying to do right now with the EU. And because they made a few concessions or like a few steps forward, well, they basically capitulated to what the EU has been saying all along um, when Theresa May made her Florence speech. Um, they can move towards first this transitionary, this transitionary period, right? Because I think it's become very clear that Within the time allotted in the Article 50 talks, there's not enough time for the UK to agree its broad new trading relationship with the EU. So they're first going to talk about the divorce. Then they're going to have a transitional period where pretty much what the government is saying now or and the EU recognises that everything kind of stays the same. And then in that transitionary period, then they talk about their new trading uh, relationship. But is it is it a good outcome? Well, I mean... The UK is leaving the world's largest market, a market of 500 million consumers, which Thatcher helped to build, by the way, ironically. And it's doing that because one of the uh, four freedoms of being a full member of the single market means you have to accept free movement of people. Now, because the UK doesn't want to accept free movement of people, it's leaving the world's largest market and it's going to have a far more uh, restrictionary immigration regime in place. And I think all economists agree that putting up trade barriers is harmful to your economy. And that is exactly what the UK is doing. It's You can argue about how much impact it will have economically, which sectors will impact the most. But it is, fact, a way of putting up trade barriers. And I don't think that's going to be good for the economy. Going forward, I think the bigger questions for business and the economy in general are, you know, what is this new immigration regime going to look like? 
because especially for some of the more dynamic sectors of the UK, the UK's economy, like tech, they need access to talent. And if the government's policy is going to be keep it to tens of thousands, then I think that will have a really adverse uh, impact. So it's a damage control exercise at this point. Um, I don't see the UK emerging stronger. Uh, it'd be different, perhaps, if they had this, a super Trump-like Brexit strategy thought out, a Trump card to pull out. But as we've seen in the past few months, all the fighting within the parties is because there's no agreement on what Brexit actually looks like. And the biggest fear, the biggest loss, in my view, is also an opportunity lost, uh, opportunity cost. Because whilst the rest of the world is moving on and investing in um, industries of the future, the UK, by definition of what a complex thing this is, Brexit, is going to be navel-gazing for the next, I don't know, three, five, seven years. Uh, it's going to take up the government's entire capacity. Um, so it will be reactionary rather than forward-looking. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it amazes that me that, that, that this is all happening without any plan. It is uh, absolutely beyond me. As somebody who, uh, as part of my profession, is winging it on stage, even I prepare more <laughs> than they do. Um, so it's uh, and, and 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 you. Uh, how long have you been living in the UK for now? Uh, I've been living here for 12 years. Um, 12 years, right. And then yeah. you're, are you feeling, uh, because I had a, a very long conversation with someone on the way back from um, uh, being in Copenhagen, and, and she was, uh, she'd been uh, Danish, she'd been living in the UK for, for 19 years, and she was very concerned about her status as a citizen. How are you feeling yeah. um, about your future as an EU citizen in the UK? What are your concerns? Well, I've been living here for 12 years, so I've lived here my entire adult life, and I'm a massive Anglophile. But of course, like, after the referendum, um, I decided that I'd try to apply for residency, perhaps citizenship, because I wasn't sure what my status was. Um, and in fact, what ended up happening is that my permanent residency was rejected on a very dubious legal technicality, which has caught out a lot of EU migrants. Um, the Home Office has since clarified that, you know, they, they, this is illegal. They're not going to be enforcing it anymore. But then they've also told all EU citizens, don't bother applying for residency because you're going to have a new status. So you're going to have to go through that process once this new status is decided. Um, the, the problem is we don't know what that new status is or when it's coming in. Uh, so it's a lot of uncertainty. And certainly anecdotally, uh, to with a lot of EU citizens who've been living here, people are considering their options. Uh, some people have left. I wouldn't say that millions are still here, but certainly people are looking at other options. And whenever I talk to people who have companies that hire EU migrants, anecdotally at least, you've heard loads of stories of people making job offers and those uh, jobs being turned down because people are not sure if they want to come to the UK because they don't know if they'll be able to build a life here and stay here in the future. So it's definitely having an impact. And the, uh, the, the flip side of that, of course, is that other countries in Europe are lobbying hard to get people to move to their countries because they, they want the brightest and the best. I was with a delegation of tech entrepreneurs in Paris on Monday and Tuesday, and the Parisians, the French government, was rolling out the red carpet, um, urging 
these founders to move their businesses over and also, you know, for, for business owners, having a, that talent pool freely available is something that's very valuable. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it does uh, sort of amaze me that this Brexit could leave. Well, it probably will leave the UK in a, in a in a worse position before, and really, really strengthen the EU with all the the best people from the UK now as part of you <laughs> instead. Um, yeah, the yeah. day after the referendum, uh, the FDP. These are this is the German Liberal Party, who Tory MPs are fondly saying are are their cousins across you know across the channel, and that the FDP are going to make sure that you know Merkel strikes a good Brexit deal for the UK. The day after the referendum. They had trucks driving around London with huge posters saying, you know, keep calm and move to Berlin. So, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So... Well, a little bit you know, of context is always helpful. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll, I'll look into uh, I'll look into how much flats in Berlin are. I think very very soon. Much um, more affordable than London. <laughs> well, I know, I know. I've heard, I've heard. Um, and uh, and I was I was just going to say that you you said you applied for citizenship and, and we rejected. And I think one of the things that I think any um, UK citizen wouldn't understand is how complicated the process is. Because I mean, obviously, there are reasons why citizenship needs to not be instantly easy mm. to get because of welfare etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh, i was told it was like an 85 page document where you have to list every time you've left the country and oh, i couldn't believe it it is utterly ridiculous so actually under the free movement rules technically if you're an eu migrant and you've been here for five years you automatically uh, qualify for citizenship now i'm going to bore you with all the technicalities <laughs> that the home office does uh, then the home office changed it and they said you can't do that you have to apply for permanent residency first and then you hold your permanent residency for a year before you can apply for citizenship. Okay, so to do the permanent residency application, it's, it is famous 84-page pa- form in which you have to detail every single time you've left the country for five years. <laughs> so good luck find, finding all your EasyJet and Ryanair email receipts. <laughs> um, count the number of days. Um And then what ended up happening is that they also put in another provision called comprehensive sickness insurance, which basically meant that all EU migrants had to prove that within their qualifying period, they hadn't, they had had comprehensive sickness insurance, which meant they hadn't been using the NHS. Now, that's utterly ridiculous if you're an EU migrant living and working here because you lose provisions for healthcare in your own home country, right? So uh, there are all these kind of like little loopholes like that, which when, you know, I tweeted about this and people were outraged because they didn't realize quite how difficult the home office can be. Uh, But yes, they don't like to make it easy. No, goodness. I mean, uh, uh, to, to find a very bleak silver lining, I suppose it can't get that much more difficult for you citizens in the UK than, <laughs> well, than it already I think is. They've, uh, well, <laughs> they've, they've come under so much fire for this and they've admitted, you know, that it's quite dodgy. Hmm. So they've said that when the new status is clear, it'll be a streamlined and easy process. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I hope, I hope so. I do hope so, but uh, but we'll see. Um, right, and, and last question, and um, this is what I ask all the guests on this show, is uh, apart from yourself, obviously, which all the listeners should follow you on Twitter um, and check your website, but is there anyone else um, that you enjoy following and you recommend listeners uh, look to and follow if they want information on European news and politics and anything? Uh, you know, who do you go to? Oh, <laughs> 
I, I have a, a list of obscure <laughs> German political commentators, and we always uh, we always like to laugh when uh, we're being Brexit explained to. Uh, pa- <laughs> uh, Pavel Swidlicki is a really really great one. He's my former colleague um, uh, from the days I was in the think tank world. He's actually uh, he's he's British, but uh, his parents are from Poland. He, he's really good for the wry remarks and he has a really good understanding over the entire Brexit issue. Can I just ask, him. what's his, uh, how, do, how do I spell his surname? Because that's going to be tricky for the listeners. Oh, OK. Let me... <laughs> or, or, or what's his uh, username on Twitter? It's probably easier. OK. So it's Pavel, so P-A. Uh, oh, hold on, let me look him up. OK. OK, so it's, uh, so his Twitter handle is at P Swidlicky. That's S W I D L I C K I. Cool, that's brilliant. I'm sorry, I had to get you to spell that out. It's not very exciting, but I don't think we'd have found it otherwise. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> brilliant. Cool. Um, perfect. Well, thank you. Oh, very and much. I have oh. another plug actually. If, oh, yeah, if, if if you have listeners who are uh, geeks on the the, the trade provisions of like what Brexit means. They should follow Ali Renson. She's the head of Europe and trade policy at the IOD. And her handle is at Ali, that's A-L-L-I-E, Renison, R-E-N-I-S-O-N. And she's really good on the trade stuff. So it's worth checking her out. And she's also really interesting because she started her political career working for UKIP. And she's had, uh, yeah, so, but then I think she's had a a transformation in views so she's good good i'm very <laughs> glad to hear it excellent <laughs> that's the correct way to uh, have your views exactly. i think Thank you lots to Nina for that. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Nina D. Schick. That's uh, Nina and then D and then S-C-H-I-C-K uh, for all things Brexit and otherwise. And um, you can find her website with lots of her news appearances at ninaschick.com. And hopefully you also caught her spelling of Powell Swidlicky's name um, and uh, Twitter account. And the other person that she recommended you follow as well was Ali Renison, who you can find at Ali, that's A-L-L-I-E, Renison, R-E-N-I-S-O-N. As always, I'm very keen to find out who you'd like me to interview and I'm currently looking to see if I can find someone to inform us all a bit more properly about the Catalonian referendum. So if you have any ideas or tips or just someone or something else entirely that you'd like me to get on the show, do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, you could use the ancient Chinese relay system of hiring several horse riders to travel five kilometres each before passing the message on to the next one while they all wear bells so each one knows they're coming. Though, to be fair, by the time they get to me, I'll hear the jingling and just be scared I'm about to get attacked by Morris dancers, so I'm probably not going to answer the door. I'd definitely opt for email if I was you. Much, much easier. It's September, October, so it stands to reason that right now it's conference season. That's political conferences, not conference pairs. Although if you plant them around now, they'll be really nice for next August. If you like pairs, that is. And if you don't, then maybe don't do that. Oh, conference season. 
Okay, so the Conservative conference is raging on at the moment. And by raging, I mean not like a kind of raging hard-on, but more a sort of strained semi brought on by a room full of knobs spurring each other on to achieve nothing that's of benefit to anyone. So, before I look at what's happened at the Conservative conference, first up, let's look at the rest of the Labour conference which finished last week. And it closed with Corbyn's very, very long speech that contained a number of interesting promises. The first was in housing, where Corbyn said Labour will promise to bring in rent controls and ensure tenants are rehoused locally when estates are regenerated. Um, I don't know exactly how regenerated. It could possibly mean that they all turn into Joni Whitaker within the next year. Also, Corbyn said that regeneration schemes will have to benefit local tenants and that'll be a wind-force blow in the face for various development companies who are trying their best to limit social housing in their luxury developments to the absolute minimum. But it's also going to get on the tits of various Labour councils, including Lambeth, who turned over several of their developments to private contractors, all of whom are making life very hard for local tenants. Corbyn also mentioned workplace democracy, which doesn't mean everyone has to vote for whose turn it is to make tea in the office, although I suppose it could be, as he was a bit vague on what it does mean, but he did mention proper union representation and participatory forms of management. There was also talk of nationalising utilities, um, which doesn't just mean that everyone gets to use my fork, uh, but instead McDonnell uh, mentioned it in his speech earlier in the conference that it would mean that companies such as Thameswater wouldn't be able to give their foreign investors £100 million in dividends like they did last year, despite their profits, and pun only partly intended, massively sinking. Plus, Thameswater were fined back in June £8.6 million for missing their leak reduction targets by 47 million litres a day. They are almost literally pissing away public money. I mean, not literally, but I was going for a leaking wordplay gag there. We like le- leaking piss. No, 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 no. Things that have been mentioned before that Corbyn reiterated in his speech were scrapping tuition fees, uh, though the funding of that is yet unclear, but I guess you would have a ton more educated people who could look into it once they graduate. And, of course, there was a mention of scrapping the public sector pay cap as well. Then there is a law change on organ donation, so people have to opt out rather than opt in, and that's bodily organs, not musical ones, as I can't really imagine people in need of surgery really want a rendition of Takata and Fugue before they kick it. And then Corbyn also kept hammering home that Labour were the party of unity, and he said there can never ever be an excuse for any abuse of anybody by anybody, which means he obviously hasn't seen Boris Johnson around for a while, because I'm really pretty certain that he deserves it from absolutely everyone. And while it was good that Corbyn condemned all abuse, it is odd that once again he didn't specify anti-Semitism after accusations of such kicked up at the conference once again. This time, a guest speaker, American-Israeli author called Miko Peled, said during a fringe event that freedom of speech meant the ability to criticise and discuss every issue, whether it's the Holocaust, yes or no. Which is a stupid thing to say, as the only reason you'd use both yes and no in regards to the Holocaust would be to say yes it happened, no denying it, because that's how history and facts work. If you really want to make a point about free speech at a Labour conference, try to use something that doesn't have anti-Semitic overtones. For example, the Ghostbusters remake. Yes or no? See? It's easy to do it. Oh, no, wait, hang on. Where's Paul Feig from? Oh, shit. Sorry, everyone. Jezza made a lovely dig at the Daily Mail, which was refreshing to see a main party not pander to Paul. I hate the EU, but I get £250,000 in subsidies from them every year, Dakra. And Corbyn's speech ended with a promise to offer an antidote to apathy and despair. He means MDMA, right? He means free MDMA for everyone, yeah? Yeah? But overall, his speech felt like a positive, confident speech. And if Labour can sort out the issues of abuse within the party, then they are actually going to be a strong threat to the government for the first time in years. 
I mean, if there's an election anytime soon, which it doesn't look like there will be, so it's kind of up to Labour to keep this kind of energy and enthusiasm up while the Conservatives just take all their best ideas, water them down and present them as their own. God, I bet they make really bad squash. But this is what the Conservative Conference appears to be. A sort of Labour light event, if you will. A kind of diet Labour. A sort of new Labour. OK, maybe. After their Pyrrhic victory at the snap election, Conservatives are trying to work out how to appeal to young voters again, like Labour have done. Only they're trying to get down with the kids by flashing them their iPod classic and talking about Bebo. I can't imagine anything they've announced so far is going to sway anyone under 30 their way instead of voting for Labour. For example, Theresa May announced that students will now not pay back their student loans until they earn £25,000 a year, up from £21,000. Which is good, but essentially says they're still going to have a ton of debt, and as soon as they earn more, they're going to be punished for it. Tories are still saying students are going to have debts of £9,250 a year, while in contrast, Labour are saying they won't have any. And that's a tough choice, right? I mean, would you like a big old punch in the face, but not for a week, or just no punch in the face? Would you like me to set fire to all your stuff in 2022? Or how about I just don't set fire to your stuff? What are you going to do? Housing-wise, Sajid's smooth, smooth head like a pebble Javid made a speech full of anger at his party's failure of housing. But then he ended it with a policy that landlords would be forced to join an ombudsman scheme so renters could have more power-challenging rip-off fees, but only after they'd been ripped off, and then an extension of the help-to-buy scheme, which gives you 5% of the purchase price of a new home for first-time buyers at a maximum of £20,000 per property. Yeah, I'm sure that helps, you know, when average house prices in England and Wales are now 303200 and you you need a 40% deposit for most of them. So with help to buy, you'll only have to find £101.280 for the deposit in order to get yourself on the housing ladder. Thanks, Conservatives. It just makes the prospect of home ownership for most people even more unlikely that they should really spell it help to BYE. Philip Hammond, in his speech, promised an extra £300 million to future-proof the railway network in the north uh, after scrapping the plans for rail electrification in the Lake District and the Midlands back in July and the modernisation of the Cardiff-Swansea line, which I hope isn't what he means when he says he's going to future-proof northern railways because the Cardiff-to-Swansea line, despite the direction of travel, it often just feels like you're going back in time. And apart from that, and disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox saying that the BBC need to be more upbeat about Brexit, which I really hope they take to mean they should commission a ton of rappers to say how shit it will be, and Michael Gove talking about pig's ears because that's what he makes of everything, the main chat seems to have been how scared they are of Labour and how they need to remake the arguments for free trade and capitalism. But I can't help but feel that when all their arguments are backed by policies that essentially say, hey, you can't do things unless you're already rich, then they'd have better luck trying to persuade people that they can take a shit on their doorstep in a few weeks rather than never do it at all. Which, to be fair, I fully expect Liam Fox to announce as a policy by Wednesday. And that is all for this week's podcast. Thank you as always for listening and please do review the show, donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi and drop me a line about anything you like from politics to your favourite type of onion. Mine is a trade onion. To partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com at parpolbro on Twitter or the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group. Big, big thank you to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for the musics. Go get his album, go on, hurry up and do that. And this podcast will be back next week, by which point we'll have heard Theresa May's speech to the Conservative Conference that will no doubt sound like if you put Jeremy Corbyn's speech into Google Translate, changed it into binary and then changed it back 400 times. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by Michael Gove's Pig Ears, a nutritional way to ruin dinner and Britain for everyone. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.